Well, it's good to be with you once again, and I pray that the Lord is blessing you and that you are feeling those blessings and understanding that even in these weird, weird times, how blessed you really are. I was thinking about the other day about uh, just being at home, and uh, <clears throat> even though we're not technically under quarantine like we were a while back, I was thinking about Paul, the apostle, being under house arrest in the New Testament. How much different his house arrest must have been from our quarantine. Think about all of the comforts that we have, the entertainment that we have, uh, all of those kind of things. But when you're locked down, so to speak, <clears throat> excuse me, it's very difficult to think in a positive and a happy manner. This whole thing has been kind of a, uh, not only suppressing the economy, but I think it suppressed us emotionally in so many ways. I was thinking back about when I was a kid, being in the military, uh, we had to move a lot, and a lot of times when we didn't want to move. And I remember what it was like to either have your friend come into uh, class, maybe in fifth grade, and you go, what's the matter? And he said, my dad got orders, and now you're losing a friend. Or maybe my dad would get orders, and we had to leave. Nobody asked us, nobody you know, gave us any choices on any of that. And it was kind of hard. Now, I've lived in some neat places. But sometimes when you want to be back with your friends in Kansas at a post there, you don't really think about how cool it is to maybe be living in San Francisco or Berlin, Germany or something like that. But when you look back on those times, they were kind of neat. They were kind of good. It's always nice to have things that you can look back on and to be able to say those were better times than I really thought they were. You know, the uh, Charles Dickens line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I think that kind of describes where we are now. And I think some of the things that we look at now that we hate, give us a few years and we're going to look back and we're going to see that there was some good that came out of all of this. Maybe your family got to know each other better. Maybe you uh, learned how to relate to one another. Maybe the bonds became stronger. I don't know. Maybe your faith was increased. Maybe you were able to see God move and work and provide. And so maybe one of these days you'll look back on this COVID-19 2020 thing as um, maybe better than it really first appeared. But we have this tendency as humans to kind of struggle under whatever conditions that we're under. We don't always like them. We don't always see the good in them. And sometimes we question, why is this happening? Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 74? And we're going to look at another psalm of Asaph, our buddy from Psalm 78. But he's writing now in a different time and under a different situation. Israel, the nation, and in particular the uh, nation of Judah, that southern part where the temple was, has been invaded, it has been decimated, it has been destroyed, the temple has been looted, kind of sounds contemporary, doesn't it? And um, people have been taken into exile. And when they took the people into exile to take them to Babylon, they took the brightest, they took the best, they took the youngest, they took the most capable. And the ones they left behind tended to be older, sick. They tended to be uh, the ones who were poor, who were uneducated. I mean, people that are not really going to be able to mount a revolution against Babylon they're not going to be able to rebuild a mighty nation that might be a threat to the Babylonian Empire 
Uh, they're just going to be interested in surviving, just getting by. And life became poor, it became awful and very meager for the children of God who were left behind. Not to mention the exiles. That's where Daniel comes in. He was taken captive in Judah and taken to uh, live in Babylon and he became an advisor to the king and all of that. But his heart was always back in his homeland and with his people in Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that every day he would pray and he would open the windows and he would pray towards Jerusalem. That's where his heart was. That's where the covenant was made. That's where kings like David ruled and reigned. That's where the promised land was, those type of things. And I think that Israel was a lot like us in the fact that when they had trouble, they would run to God. They would turn to God. And sometimes their turning to God didn't look like turning to God ought to look. It looked more like, how dare you, God? And uh, how can you be doing this to your own people? There's a little bit of that in this psalm that we're going to read. And then they would also do what we do. When everything was good, they tended to kind of forget God. They tended to think, look what we've done, and look how well we've done, and look at all the things that we have, and getting caught up in all of those things instead of worshiping the Creator who allowed them to have so many good things. I think in our situation, sometimes we forgot how good normal really was. Now we're living in a time, boy, 2020 has been a mess. I was uh, trying to think back, how did 2020 start? What do we do on New Year's? What do we do in January? And I got to thinking about even as a church. Remember we had a big ministry appreciation celebration? And uh, that was a great time. And remember the deacons that we ordained and Isaac was ordained and there were things like that that were going on. Man, those seem like they were a million, million years ago, don't they? And all we can think about is kind of where we are and how we get out of this and how we get back to more of a normal situation. And as I said before, excuse me, my Kindle just turned off for some reason. Um, as I've said before, normal, is it really what we want? Or maybe is there something better for us as we come out of all of this? But in the meantime, maybe we need to think a little bit like Asaph did when he looked around and he saw uh, Mount Zion, the place where the temple used to be, when he would look around and he would see where the, the fields used to be producing plenty of crops and grains, where cattle would graze, things like that, and they're gone, they're decimated. When he used to be able to look out on the streets and see them with uh, prosperous people and businesses that are doing well, and now they're ransacked and they've been emptied and the only people he sees are people that are old and poor and destitute. It, it's a whole different situation and there's not a whole lot of hope. So I thought if we were to look at what Asaph said in this psalm, because it's called, if you'll notice in the heading, a maskil of Asaph. What's a maskil? Well, the basic definition of that, it's an instructive. Maybe there's something that we can learn in the perilous times that we're living in from people who have made it through much worse times, to be honest. And uh, we can look at this and see what the Lord would have us do. So let's begin reading. Got it? Verse 1. O oh God, why have you cast, out your cast us off forever? And why does your <clears throat> anger, look at that word, says smoke, 
against the sheep of your pasture. Can I stop there? Um, this, this is a weird way of talking. Because when Asaph uses the word for God, in English we just have one generic word. Hebrew had several words. It could be translated God. He doesn't use a term that talks about anything of endearment, shepherd, father, or even Lord. He says, oh God, it's the word Elohim. It's the first time God is referred to in Genesis chapter 1. It has to do with a God who is powerful, who is the creator, who is, uh, well, basically the powerful one, and that's how he addresses God. Uh, you don't normally do that in, when times are good, do you? Uh, when times are good, you go before God and you call him Lord God or Sovereign God, or you call him Father or O Shepherd of Israel. And so uh, Asaph is saying something here like this, O powerful one, why are you letting this happen? O you who have the power to change things, why in the world are we in the shape that we're in? You see that? A little different. And then it says, uh, why have you cast us off forever? Well, remember all of the covenants made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, even to Moses and uh, the Davidic covenant? Remember all of that? Now all of a sudden it seems like they've been stricken as null and void. What happened to the God who made covenant with us? Why has he, he cast us off? And in Asaph's mind, the forever there was not a concrete term of absolute fact because he didn't know. He had no idea. That's why he's asking the question. But what he is saying is, it seems like you packed up and left town. It doesn't seem like you're coming back. I don't see anything, any indication that things are going to go back to the way that they were before. And then he says something in the next half of verse 1. Why does your anger and the smoke there could be translated, why does it smolder against the sheep of your pasture? You know, there are two things that if you were taking care of sheep that you don't want to mix, and that's sheep and fire. You don't want the pasture to be smoldering. Sheep need to eat, not to mention that the fire is a danger to their lives. So Asaph is saying, I'm confused. And this doesn't make sense. This doesn't fit together with everything that I know about God, with everything I know about the covenants, with everything that I know about Israel. Something seems way, way off. Have you ever felt like that? Life sometimes does that to us. And we wonder, how in the world do the pieces of the puzzle fit? And where's God in all of this situation? Basically, when Asaph says, why have you cast us off forever? That's a nice Hebrew way, a poetic way of saying, where's God? You know, we're no different. There have been books that have been written about the Murrah building bombing. Where was God on April 19th? I remember seeing one of those in a bookstore. And people, when we look around at tragedies and war and famines and pestilence, all of those, we, where's God? Where's God in all of this? It's kind of what Asaph is saying. Let's go ahead and look at verse 2 and make sure we understand it. Remember your congregation. Congregation is a called assembly which you have purchased of old the tribe of your inheritance. That would be the tribe of Judah. Okay, which you have redeemed the Mount Zion, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Mount Zion is where the temple was. And you remember that under uh, the first time of the judges and all of that, 
Remember that there was a tabernacle, not a temple. It was the one that they built when they were traveling through the wilderness. It was a portable church kind of thing. And uh, they had it in Shiloh. But then later, God had them move that to Jerusalem in the tribe of Judah. And then Solomon built a temple there, a permanent structure. It was a glorious structure. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. People would travel to Jerusalem just to lay eyes on the temple. And it was said that there was so much gold in Solomon's temple that when the sun was setting, you couldn't look at the building because of the reflection off of uh, the temple, off of the gold that was in the temple. Beautiful, beautiful. Now you remember in the story of Israel how glorious all that was when the temple was set up. But they always had this, uh, let's call it a cancer, that was in their life. And Solomon participated in it that they would worship at the temple, that was the main thing, but then they always had these other things in the high places. And they were pragmatists. The way that they would work is they would say, oh God, we're going to come and we're going to worship you. Now you're our priority, you're, you're number one, but you know, Baal is a close second. And if you're not doing what we think you ought to do, Elohim, Yahweh, then we're going to run to Baal and we're going to see if something might work there because whatever works, whatever gets us what we want, that's the God that we're going to pray to. I mean, after all, it can't hurt. Do you know I actually had a guy in a Baptist church, it wasn't here, thankfully, but a guy in a church, it was a Baptist church, and he was a solid member of that church. And he told me one time, he goes, you know, prayer is all about getting what you want. And he said, I'll pray to the devil if it'll get me what I want. Now that was somebody that uh, people looking around would have been shocked to hear him say that. And that was the expression of his heart. You know what that was? The expression of Israel back in the day when they were in the land with the temple. I'll pray to whoever will give me what I want. So if I go to the temple and pray for rain for my crops and it doesn't happen, well then, you know, Baal is a god of the Canaanite god of the weather and the atmosphere, I'll go see what happens there. And you know, just as things happen sometimes, you go and you pray to Baal and the next day there's a thunderstorm and your crops get the water that they need. Uh, wow, there may be something to it. Some of you may have looked sometime at a horoscope and you go, well, I don't really believe it, I'm just going to see what it says. And lo and behold, what it said actually happened for that particular time. Now that imprints something in our brain. It doesn't put in our brain all the times it didn't work. We remember when it did work and we say, oh, there must be something to that. And that's what the Israelis were doing. But they sure had God number one. I remember in high school yearbooks, people would write, keep God number one. Well, what does that mean? You know, the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Some people think that means just keep God number one. Have all the other gods you want. But as long as the true God is number one, you'll be okay. That's not what God meant in the Ten Commandments. What He had commanded His people, and that command still is for us, is you shall have no other gods. When He said before me, I'm talking to a camera right now, this camera is before me, right? If I stand in front of a congregation, I am standing before the congregation. And God was saying, you shall have no other gods before me, no other gods in my presence. Nothing, period. It's not that we just keep God top on the priority list. We don't have a priority list because God consumes everything. Well, the problem that the people of Israel, 
just like us, is they thought they could play around with all of this and they would still be okay. After all, no lightning struck and uh, things are going pretty good. In fact, at one time I went to that Canaanite festival, we actually got rain. There's, there's something to all of this. And it began to suck them into an evil system turning against God. Now you remember that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to them warning them about what was going to happen and telling them that it's not going to be just a lack of rain that will get your attention or some type of a famine or an economic downturn, but there are going to be enemy invaders that are going to come and I'm not going to protect you. There are going to be enemy invaders that are going to come and at first it's going to be just, you know, raiding a village or something like that. Later it's going to come to where an army comes out of nowhere and then he identifies that army, and it was an army that everybody would have said, you got to be kidding. Uh, Chaldeans, there's no way that they could invade us and uh, destroy our nation. It would be kind of like um, if I were prophesying today and I said, beware America, the Dominican Republic is going to come and destroy you. Everybody would laugh at that. that. They don't even have much of an army or a population base or anything. Well, that's the way people were about the Chaldeans. You've got to be kidding. This is a joke. Chaldeans couldn't come and do all of this. But the Chaldean uh, people uh, grew into an empire under Nebuchadnezzar, and they sure enough did do that. And so the people of God are caught off guard. This doesn't seem to fit. Nothing is working right and why has God abandoned us and where is God in the midst of all of this? Now I think that Asaph does some things in this uh, context. Oh, by the way, if you want to read about some of that, 2 Kings 25 will tell you about it. But uh, I think in the practical aspect of this, what do we do when life and the times and our faith and the promises of God don't seem to be in effect. They don't seem to be coming together. They don't seem to be working for us. I mean, if you're like me, I think about 2020, good night, there's six more months of this year left, right? What, are the, what else is going to happen? What, what other things are we going to go through? So what are we going to do? Well, I think it's time for you and me and all of the people of God everywhere to do a little bit of what Asaph did. And uh, here's what I would say. Number one, look up and cry out to God. Let's commend Asaph for the fact that when life didn't make sense, he didn't go to the pollsters, he didn't go to the politicians, he didn't go to the entertainment industry. That's kind of a laugh anyway when some of those people speak up. What he did was he ran to God. Now, when he goes to God and uh, cries out to him, he's crying out to the God of power. You are a God of all power. Why is all of this happening? You know, all of my life I've had people say, well, I know we mustn't question God. Where do you get that? Now, if you're questioning God in the idea of saying that, uh, uh, Lord, explain yourself to me. What right do you have to do this? Uh, well, now we've got an issue because you're not God's judge and you don't hold him to account, do you? He owes you no explanation. But if you come to him in humility, knowing that God doesn't do anything randomly, there's always a reason, always a purpose, and you're able to go to God and say, God, I want to learn. I want to know what's going on. I want to know what you're doing so that I can learn from it, so that I can understand, so that I can see it. Ah, now we're on a different level. 
And I'm afraid that so many people, they don't really turn to God in good times. They don't turn to God when everything makes sense. But they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And they go to everyone that they can, and they talk to people, and they read things, and they research, and they come up with all kinds of schemes and all kinds of plans of their own, and then they fall apart, and they have nowhere else to go, and so they go to God. This is the old story of the preacher coming into the church building, and he says to his secretary, Miss Jones, there's nothing left to do but pray, and she goes, oh no, has it come to that? You see, we see God as a last resort instead of a first resource, and therein lies our problem. Because that's what Jerusalem did, that's what Judah did, that's what the tribes of Israel did, and that was to their downfall. God was always the last resort. You almost get the idea when you read through the Old Testament that when they would go to the temple, offer their sacrifices, they, they did it with kind of a ho-hum, this is just what we're supposed to do attitude. But when they went to the Feast of Baal with their Canaanite neighbors, they went to that with joy excitement, expectancy, nothing's going to get in the way of this. Boy, this is fun. And you can imagine over time what that does to their faith, what that does to their walk with God, what that does to them feeling and knowing the promises of God and the covenants of God. All of that was kind of set aside. We're still doing it. Nobody can condemn us for not worshiping God. It's not like we're atheists. But their joy and their zeal was much more in their sin than it was in their righteousness. You know, the Bible says in the book of Nehemiah, when they're rebuilding the walls, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I think that a joyless Christianity, a joyless religion, is going to be a very weak religion. And that's what had happened to them, and that's what we're in danger of. Are you looking to God? And are you looking to God not just when you think your job might be lost, not just when you're afraid you might get a, a, a virus that may put you in the hospital, not just when the stock market crashes, not just in those times. It's good to look during those times. But God is teaching us that we are to look to Him in the good times, in the times when we don't really feel like we need it. I've kind of got this right now, God. I'll call you whenever I need you. No, 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 a thousand times no. That's what they had done in the Old Testament that got them in this trouble. So the corrective is, look up and look to God. That's the only place that you are going to get any kind of help at all and do it as a first resource rather than a last resort. Okay, number two, ask God questions. And uh, Asaph starts here, uh, why have you cast us off forever? Where'd you go? What are you doing? We don't understand all of this, and we don't um, have any way of knowing the end from the beginning, the good from the bad, the right from the wrong. We're mixed up. We're confused. Everything seems to be crazy, and it doesn't seem to be working in a way that is logical. Why in the world, if you are our shepherd, Psalm 23, remember what David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. Why, if you are our shepherd, are you setting our pasture on fire? Why, if you are our shepherd, why are you letting us be in danger? And Asaph is kind of recalling the uh, covenants of God. And he's asking these questions because nothing seems to be fitting together in the right way. And uh, so, again, nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us 
not to question God. We need to because we need to learn of Him. And so God withdrew the blessing of protection and everything just seems to be backwards. The enemy's doing whatever they wish to do. Now, think about this. If a typical Jew went to the temple, Solomon's temple, and they were to just walk in and go into any room, what do you think would happen to them? What if they went back, pulled the veil of the Holy of Holies, and walked in and said, I'd kind of like to take a look at the Ark of the Covenant. Well, we know what would happen. They were under penalty of death. Uh, even when they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant back from uh, when the Philistines had it. Remember that one guy? All he did was touch it to try to steady it, and he died. Kind of made David angry, if you'll remember. But uh, isn't it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar can walk in, and he goes into the temple, and nothing happens. His armies, his invaders go into the temple, and everybody holds their breath, and nothing happens. And they come out carrying the uh, treasures of the temple, all of those things that Solomon had made of bronze and silver and gold. They come carrying them out. They looted the temple and nothing happened to them. This doesn't seem to be working. Why is the enemy allowed in Israel to begin with? And why is it that they can even go into the holiest part of the temple and nothing seems to happen? Have you ever asked any question like that? Have you ever wondered why it is that it seems like the people of God are restrained and we're restrained in different ways? We can't pray in school and those type of things, right? But my goodness, they can talk about anything else that they want to, every perverse thing under the sun in public schools, and nothing happens. What's going on? Why are those kind of things happening? I think those are good, good questions for us to ask. How did we get here, and what is going on? Now, something to consider before we move on. For years, God had protected them, and they worshipped idols. And they put more trust in the temple than they did the living God. Want me to explain that? Whenever the prophets would come and say, destruction is coming, they would say, no, God will never destroy that. This is where his temple is. He likes his temple. He lives in the temple. He's not going to let us be destroyed. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want, and with whomever we want. And God won't do anything about it because to destroy that, he would have to destroy his own house. Boy, they had a small, small view of God, didn't they? And a very exalted view of themselves. That brings us to the third thing that I would like for uh, us to consider. Catch up here in my uh, notes. And that is, we need to remember the Word. This is a good time to turn to the Word of God and to remember the uh, promises of God. Now, isn't it interesting that Asaph says, Remember your congregation, as if God had forgotten, which you have purchased of old. He's thinking bringing them out of Egypt. He's thinking about the Passover lambs, all kinds of things like that. The tribe of your inheritance, that's specifically related to Judah, the one that was a custodian of Jerusalem and of the temple, which you have redeemed. And so, isn't it interesting that he speaks of the covenant? God, it doesn't seem like you're treating us the way you promised to. Now, how did Asaph know that? Because of the word of God. God had written that down in his law. Isn't it interesting that Asaph is reminding God of his own word? I don't think that's particularly bad. We need to pray the Word of God. We need to claim the promises of God. But I find it very, very ironic that Asaph is asking God to remember 
what Israel had forgotten. What was the problem here? It wasn't that God didn't remember his promises. It's that Israel didn't remember theirs. It's that Israel completely ignored the prophets. They ignored the word of God. And now Asaph is saying, oh God, please remember what we have forgotten. Couldn't we in America say the same thing? Couldn't we as believers say the same thing? Oh God, please remember your grace and your mercy and your power and your promises and then confess the sin because we certainly haven't done that. And so if Israel had remembered and they had obeyed, how different would this situation be, right? Number four, let's wrap it up. Set your heart on worship. It says, this Mount Zion, remember that's Temple Mount, where you have dwelt. Back in 2 Chronicles 7, 1, Solomon dedicated the temple and he prayed a prayer. And it says that uh, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord. It came down in the form of a cloud, a mist. And it was so strong that even the priest, they, they couldn't do what they needed to do. The glory was there, the Shekinah, the glory of God. The Bible also says in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. The presence of God in the temple is gone. Let me tell you something. The manifested presence of God, that's different than the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere because he's an unlimited God. But the manifested presence of God is a different thing. When God shows his power, when God shows his glory, it's an amazing and a wonderful thing. You may have experienced something similar to that where it just seems like the glory of God falls upon maybe a worship service or maybe upon you individually while you're having your quiet time. And with the presence, the manifested presence of God, you always have his power. But Israel, what they are experiencing now is God has said, you think you can control it yourself? Have at it. And he pulls away the manifested presence. And when he does that, the power is no longer there. They can still pray, they can still chant, they can still sing their songs, they can still do all of those things that they have done before. But God says, I'm not interested. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 14, he even tells Jeremiah, don't pray anymore for these people, because when they pray, I'm not going to hear it. When they offer, I'm not going to receive it. But I will destroy them with famine and pestilence and the sword. Remember that? There comes a point where God says, you wanted it? to where I would leave you alone and you could do what you want, have at it. And that's the worst situation that you or a nation could ever find yourself in. Because when the presence of God is not manifested, His power doesn't protect. Oh, we need in this day and in this time, as the people of God, to turn to God. Take this as a mass skill and instructive and apply it to your life. You say, well, I'm only one person. What good will that do? Well, David was only one person standing against Goliath, right? Uh, the power of one is, is very powerful when God is using you. But what if you and other people all started doing the same thing that we're going to talk about in this psalm?
there would be power in that. And I believe that God would honor that. So in these perilous times, remember to trust in God and to seek the Lord, whether it's a good time or whether it's a bad time. May I pray for you? Father, for our church, we pray your blessing. We pray your glory would be upon us because we live for your glory. We long for your glory. And we ask that your glorious power might be manifested in and among us. We pray that you would heal sick people. We pray that you would give people that are unemployed jobs. We pray that you would give law enforcement protection and also help them to function as they should, not in an unjust, powerful, authoritarian ma uh, manner, but to protect and serve. Help our president. Help uh, his cabinet and his advisors. Help our courts, our governors, our mayors, our state legislatures, all of them to function as they should. Help our economy to function as it should. Give us health, Lord, in the midst of all of this and protect us from the anarchy that seems to be rising up around us. Oh, Lord, we turn to you. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us. Protect us. Renew and revive us. And we pray this for us, for other churches, and for the sake of our nation and the glory of your name here in the United States and around the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and thank you so much to, for taking the time to listen to this and I pray that it enriches and feeds your soul for the glory of God.